Welcome to episode 85 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, you know, every week I try to, like, fluctuate my voice so I don't sound exactly the same when I say... And we're proud members, blah blah blah. But I just can't, I just can't really do it. You manage to have like a good, unique intonation every week, and I just, I appreciate that about you. I'm just trying to keep it fresh, but I received that word. Thank you. So, what do you got that you're affirming and denying on this particular week? Well, I am affirming. It's sort of a mutual reciprocal affirmation, I think. Uh, I'm affirming the website monergism.com. So, have you heard of this website? I have. This is a great site. Yeah. So monergism.com is like a one-stop resource shop for basically like reformed resources all across the internet. So it's, it's a huge, huge treasure trove of resources. And I was recently uh, inundated with messages in my Facebook in basket uh, because monergism picked up four of our episodes yeah. And a couple articles on my blog. So I had people that were like, oh my goodness, you're on monergism.com. And I looked and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm on monergism.com. So they affirmed us by linking to our episodes. And I wanted to affirm them because, you know, this is just a really good resource. And um, I, I don't use it as much as I probably could. But if you if you search like a reformed topic online, there's a good chance that within the first maybe like five or five or 10 hits on Google is going to be a monergism website or a monergism article. So check right. it out. Monergism.com. They've got lots of links, lots of good articles. It's sort of like one part blog, one part reformed search engine, but it, it's a really good site. It's like a supermarket. It's like a super Walmart, but more moral for reformed theology. I love that yeah. you can just go to the site and search for something on their site and we'll pull up all these resources, sermons, podcasts, articles, and it's like old and new stuff. Like right. you'll get John Owen and you might get us. Right. So definitely go with John Owen. Yeah. So I just did a, a brief search um, on one of our sort of our topic for the night. And on the first page that came up in their search results, I have uh, Mark Dever, Sam Storms, a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, something by Carl Henry, Mark Knoll. Um, so there's just a wide, wide range of stuff on the site. Um, and like I said, like you said, um, you might find like Puritan writings alongside like modern reform theology right next to like Augustine, uh, followed by like a reformer. So it's, it's just really good, a really good resource. Ooh, but plus aren't there like, I just remember this, aren't there like a million amazing free eBooks on the site from, yeah. from the Puritans, all kinds of great writing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I don't ever get them from there, but yeah, you, there's, they have all sorts of stuff that you can get from the website and they have a bookstore too. Um, so you can actually purchase, uh, I think you can purchase stuff through it, either that or they're just saying it's a bookstore and it's free, but yeah, you can just purchase books right from the website here. And I'm assuming that they make some sort of like, um, residual from the link. It might be the best kept secret for reform theology on the internet. I know it sounds like now I'm just fanboying, but it really is a fantastic site. Even yeah. if they didn't link to us, I'd still say you should definitely use this for anything that you're going to research. Yeah. I, I do want to note though, it's funny because I'm, we're, we're fawning all over this. And then I go to the book, the book store page and I click on a link for Michael Horton and it brings me to a page for John Stott. <laughs> <laughs> but as someone who manages multiple websites, it's not easy. So no hate, just a little bit of funny. Or that's like a purposeful redirect. Maybe it could be. You said Mike Horton, but what you really want is John Stott. Yeah. All the other links look like they work. So although they do also have Wayne Grudem on there. So it's mm. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. But yeah, check it out. It's good. It's a great site. Um, I'm actually really surprised how little this web page gets linked from in like arguments in the pub and like arguments in other Facebook groups. How like infrequently monergism.com websites get get pointed to. It's kind of strange. Again, best kept secret. It's yep. a behemoth on the internet in the reform circle. It is. What about you? What are you affirming? So I'm kicking it with a podcast this week that's not a theology podcast. Oh man, I'm switching it up on everybody. 
So I want to affirm a little podcast called Every Little Thing. Have you heard of this? I have not. This is a fantastic podcast. It, they advertise themselves as a factual answering service. And all it is is they have a phone number. People call it and leave them questions. And they just answer those questions. But there are like a serious amount of like diversity in the questions. And some of them are funny. So like the last episode was... They answered the question, why are used car ads so insane and who started that nonsense? And it was like fascinating. They also have one on do dogs have belly buttons? So there's just like a lot of it's it's just like a great little podcast to listen to. And it kind of stimulates your mind and all these kind of random topics. It's awesome. Do dogs have belly buttons? I'm trying to think and I don't I don't think they do. You got to listen to this podcast. (laughs) I have to flip my dog over and look at their look at her tummy. Her little pink ham tummy. This, this just got real. <laughs> it did. Uh, so before we get into more anatomy, is there <laughs> something that you're you're denying this week? I am. So so as it so often is the case, my denial is coming out of an interaction that I had with someone on on the Facebook on the oh, Facebook. Oh, the FB. Yes. So and it's not Mark Zuckerberg. Everybody's denying Mark Zuckerberg these days. But I also did not have an interaction with Mark Zuckerberg that I know of because he's always watching. But um, I had an interaction today where someone literally was judging a book by its cover. So Amy Bird, who is on the Mortification of Spin um, podcast and uh, is just a, a good writer and a sort of a sharp thinker, um, she wrote is write, wrote a book that's coming out in at the end of June called Why Can't We Be Friends? And it's coming off of the tale of sort of a blog article that she wrote and some other kinds of things that they're talking about. And obviously I haven't read the book, but the person who basically decried this as like feminist propaganda, which is ridiculous knowing Amy, um, literally just saw the cover of the book and, and like decried this as like liberal feminist communist propaganda. And like all three of those terms came out in the conversation. So, so I'm, wait, what's the cover look like? It, it, it just says, why can't we be friends? It has like a little doodle of like a man and a woman who are like facing opposite directions. So like the, the, the idea basically is that Amy is kind of pushing back on this sort of radical men and women should not have any sort of, uh, friendship that is beyond like polite conversation as you get like get coffee at church so she's pushing back against that and arguing and the subtitle is avoidance is not purity and so i think just from reading some of her other work i think her thesis is basically like just avoiding interactions with other with members of the other gender is not enough for us to be a pure people and we're sacrificing a lot of the rich unity and fellowship that God wants his children to have if we isolate ourselves and only maintain any sort of friendship with um, only with people of the same gender. And so, like, obviously, she's respectful of marriage. She's a conservative right. um, Presbyterian Christian. So she's not saying, like, anything goes. Um, but she's trying to make us think about the fact that, you know, Paul commands us to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters, but like you can't do that if you don't interact with them. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I, I was talking to her a little bit today and I, I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to get her on the show to, to talk about that. And I may have goaded the person who was judging her book by the cover into coming on the show to have a dialogue with her about it. So stay tuned. Hopefully that's going to happen. I'm not going to say who it was because I don't know that they're actually going to follow through on that or that Amy's going to be okay with that or that we want to follow through on it or anything. It's not for like two months. So I don't want to get us too far ahead, but seriously, people read the book before you make comments about the content of the book. It's, it's like basic Christian (laughs) rule. Integrity. Like if you're going to make critical comments about a book, at least crack the book open and the book isn't even out yet. So just don't, don't be that guy. Yeah. That's not fair. Are you going to deny a book that you haven't read next? Cause that would be pretty epic. <laughs> I should actually, there's plenty of books that I have read that I'd like to deny, but that's, that's probably true. for yeah. another week. I wasn't prepared for that. What I want to deny is something called grackles. Grackles. Yeah. I realize that sounds like some creature in Lord of the Rings, like yeah. Nazgul or something like that, but it does. This denial comes with a slight tangent of recommendation, and that is everybody should get a bird feeder. I know that sounds like an old, uh, like a thing people think old people say. Yeah. But bird feeders are awesome. Mm -hmm. They're just awesome. I don't know what it is. It's great to feed birds, 
and watch birds get fed. Yes. It sounds lame, but I'm telling you, go do that. So in our little bird feeder world, I've discovered that there is a group of super aggressive and obnoxious birds that come and they're too big for the feeder and they usually come with a posse. And at first I thought they were just smaller crows, but they're actually these birds that are dark and then their head kind of blends in this beautiful iridescent navy and they're called grackles. And the problem is we got to police the feeder because when these dudes show up, they just kick out all the other birds, like the morning doves, the chickadees, (laughs) like they, they kick them all out and they're really feisty. Yeah. I'm just not down with that. Like it's share all the other birds get along with each other. Talk about why we can't be friends. I'm not sure what is wrong with the ground. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, a weird, it's like a weird West Side story. Yeah. But I don't know if anybody else has these birds, but they're super obnoxious. They are. I bet they don't read the book that they're yelling about either. No, they just squawk. They're they definitely squawk. judging material <laughs> by its cover. I think I'm that- telling you, you got to see these things. It's incredible. But you should definitely go out and get a feeder and just set it up somewhere you can see it. It's awesome. We are now going to merge our denials Voltron style. <laughs> so now Voltron. people on the internet who read or who criticize books without having read them are now called grackles. Oh, I love that. Yes. So people, don't be a grackle. I love that. You know what the other thing is? Since we got the feeder... I have learned so many bird names <laughs> like there. I didn't know just in like your kind of standard suburban environment in South Central Pennsylvania, that there's so many birds, but like yeah. brown headed cowbird, that's a thing. And nice. sometimes they come and hang out at my feeder and then I'm like, Hey, look, it's a brown headed cowbird. <laughs> nice. You're one of those guys. Now <laughs> we're going to be at the beach and you're going to be like, Hey, look, it's a seagull. Yeah. But basically, yeah. Only because like there were so many unique birds that came and actually I'll, I'll tell you what I really did. Cause we both know, you know, my father, I just call him and Yeah, I, like I could look it up and I'm like, <laughs> there's a bird and its head is kind of like poop brown. He's like, its oh, body has like oh a yeah. Mark. Oh yeah. That's a brown headed yeah, cowbird. Then, then he'll just be like, oh yeah, it's a brown headed cowbird. Kind that's, of like that's, you're not familiar with that one. Yeah. He'd it's be pretty like, common knowledge. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I mean, I do find back to your denial that I sometimes judge the bird by the way it looks. That's true. Yeah. You know, don't (laughs) be a grackle. Don't be a grackle, people. Don't be a grackle. Read the book. Don't do it. So, Jesse, what are we talking about tonight? Besides birds. uh, Besides birds and book reading, book learning, I thought we could get into a little bit about the use of means in regeneration. So there's always this perennial debate in this false dichotomy with Reformed theology and evangelism, but I was more interested even going deeper than that and talking about what it is that God often uses to bring about regeneration. How about that as a topic? Yeah, just nothing heavy, right? (laughs) I know you love nice A nice, simple topic that we can just wrap up neatly in 40 minutes or whatever. Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah, so um, one of the common uh, criticisms that people outside of the Reformed tradition level against the, the Reformed tradition is something along the lines of, well, if God has predestined those whom he's going to save and he's going to accomplish that salvation, then why bother praying or doing evangelism? Right. And the Reformed response is, you don't understand anything about anything. You grackle. Because you're a grackle. No, the Reformed <laughs> response is more or less that God God ordains the ends, but he, in ordaining the ends, also ordains the means to those ends. Right. And so that, those are often our own effort, our own desires, I mean, created means. So I, I think what we want to do tonight is we want to sort of talk about some of those questions that might come up, some of those objections maybe, and then maybe lay out like a case for like why we believe that God uses means. Yeah, I see this all the time because it seems like there's often this misleading impression that people who embrace specifically Calvinism, right? there's this view of God's sovereign grace that they basically import that we're saying we don't believe in the necessity of preaching the gospel. And I can't think of any classical Calvinists who think people can be saved without the gospel being preached to them. Right. And if you look back, actually, over the course of church history, and and you would be a good one to kind of weigh in on this, 
the Reformed believers are impassioned to preach to every creature because without hearing the gospel, there is no salvation. So, as I see it, the relationship between Reformed theology and evangelism is sometimes characterized in this like mutual exclusivity. So, either you believe that you must be regenerated to be saved, or you believe that someone must hear the gospel and respond to it to be saved. Right. Whereas the Bible affirms both. So I think that's kind of like a good, that's usually where I start when somebody kind of has these, starts with these objections. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important to, to note that when we're talking about these things, um, what we're talking about is the ordinary way that God does things. Right. So, so um, that, that language is sort of technical language. And what we mean when we say God ordinarily does this is we're expressly not saying God can only do it this way. So um, a lot of times people will say like, well, God can do whatever you want. Yep, that's true. God, God could appear to a, um, you know, some sort of man in the middle of the jungle who's never heard the name of Jesus and appear directly to them and proclaim the gospel to them or even not proclaim the gospel to them, but just regenerate them. And that person comes to a saving faith in Christ and is like the information is downloaded into his head. But ordinarily, God does not do those things. And we have no reason from the Bible to think that he ever does those things. Right, and that's exactly. where the key is, is that we want to acknowledge that God is sovereign and so he can operate outside of the means he's revealed to us. But it would be a grave matter of presumption to assume that he is going to operate outside of the means that he's revealed that he uses. That's a really good example because that kind of situation is, I would say, like as a kind of hypothetical is really in vogue right now. Maybe it's always been, but especially in Muslim cultures. Right. So you hear a lot of people speaking about seeing Jesus in dreams and this being the thing that propels them into faith in God. And I like what you said there, because what we're basically saying is there is a non-zero chance that God can do it that way. But if we were to speak in like probabilistic statements, the probability that he would do it that way is very low. And even if you think you have a dream or an experience, most often when you speak to somebody about how that propelled them into faith, it still is paired with the gospel or it should be because there could be a disconnect between just, I saw Jesus in a dream and realized there was something special about Christianity from, I I became like a full disciple of Christ. Like for me, there still is a bridge that must be crossed there. And it's too short to say, just because I've received some kind of vision in a dream, I therefore have become like a fully orbed Christian. Maybe that's too too harsh. No, it's not. And th- this phenomena of Muslim dreaming, um, th- there's if if our listeners aren't familiar with this, which I would be hard pressed to think they aren't, but there's this recent phenomena of um, pretty significant numbers. I think right. significant enough numbers that it's it's not reasonable for us to say that it's it's fake or that it's not really happening right. or exactly. it's statistically significant it's it's not a random occurrence here it's not second and third hand accounts of these things happening it's first hand accounts of muslims former muslims saying a man came to me in a dream and told me x and now i've become a christian but what you don't what you're not seeing out of these and this is sort of the misconception i think sometimes what you don't see, and I've not heard a single account of this, someone who has a dream where Jesus reveals the entire gospel to them and they come to faith apart from some external preaching of the gospel that comes subsequent to the dream. So right. most often what's happening is you have kind of two types. There's Muslims who, for whatever reason, have interacted with Christians and so they've already heard the gospel. And so Jesus comes to them in dream and sort of that experience drives them to embrace the gospel. But more common than that are Muslims that haven't had any real interaction with uh, the gospel. And so Jesus is appearing, and I'm using this language loosely, Jesus is appearing to them in a dream. And he is um, commanding them and encouraging them and telling them to find Christians. Sometimes that seems to include like specific instructions of where to go. Very much like what we read with the conversion of Saul. Someone and, And Saul is a good example. Saul was not given what he needed to convert there. He was told to go and to seek out. Ananias, yeah, Ananias, who then preached the gospel to him and prayed for him. Right. So we have these, we have these incidents, but even even the other thing that people aren't recognizing, the dreams are a created means. 
Right, exactly. Right? So it's it's not as though God is is immediately revealing himself to these people. He's revealing himself so says the argument. I don't want to make judgments whether he is or not, but he's revealing himself in this context through a created medium of a dream. So the the use of created means is actually theologically something that the reformed have to embrace because of how we believe that God God's revelation has to be accommodated to us. Right. And sense? I think we do. I would agree right. with you that the dream often is the impetus or is the confirmation of the scripture that has already been preached. Right. But people aren't saved in a void. I mean, we mm-hmm. require the content of the gospel that we might know Christ. So even as you were thinking, the other example that came across my mind, which I just recently read actually, was Philip and of course the Ethiopian eunuch. Right. And that's like a strange, that's an awesome passage. It's a strange passage though, but I was struck this time at just how much the ordinary means are being used again by the spirit to bring the eunuch into a saving relationship. So what's strange to me that I never noticed except for this time was that when Luke is penning these words, he actually has one sentence where he says, and he was in a desert. So like the whole setup is that there is somebody, there's a situation that is dry, devoid of like the actual thing, the actual means to bring about the end. And so when he's sitting in the, not a carriage, but what is that called? Chariot? Chariot, yep. Yeah, so when he's chilling in the chariot, and reading Isaiah. And of course, he's like, says to Philip, who just, which I love as well as a runner, that it says like Philip just ran up yeah. <laughs> alongside the chariot. <laughs> like, I don't know if that was awkward or not, but if he was just like, yo, what's going on? You know, yeah. just ran up. But I love that you get this picture that Luke says, this is desert. Like, think about this just dry, arid, vast, void space, kind of like, you know, the mind of somebody who's reading the scripture without the Holy Spirit. And then the eunuch is like, yeah, I don't know who this is about. How can I, unless somebody guides me? Right. So there is this like preaching of the word. Cause then it says, it doesn't just say that Philip explained who it was, which he does, but the scriptures say that Philip preached the gospel. Basically he right. unpacked everything. He parsed out all the details. So we need both. And aside from making this sound like, well, this is lowering God by saying he can't do exactly what he wants. He's already doing what he wants because even all this is his work because where it's the dream that he initiates or the scriptures themselves, that is what God has done. Yeah. Authoring the scripture, recording the scripture, preserving the scripture for us. So instead of, I think, bringing God to a lower level, what I kind of sense out of this is this brings the scriptures to a higher level that I often forget Right. that this is the ordinary means. So there's just like all this power behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, like I said, it's important for us to remember that God acts on the human heart and using the heart, you know, kind of colloquially. God acts on the human person immediately. So the regeneration is an immediate act of God's spirit, but it's also an immediate act that is accompanied by an operative through means. Right. So so it's it's not the case that like there's some natural mechanism that's going on in regeneration. But it's also not the case that, and that would be what we mean when we say immediate, right? A mediated providential means would be there's some natural sequence that God has put in place in, in nature um, to bring about an effective end. That's not what we're saying. But it's also not immediate in that it is God is using created means to accomplish his purpose. And most right. often, and, and I would say almost inseparably, it's the proclamation of the gospel as it is recorded for us in God's word, in the scriptures. And specifically, not just the proclamation of the gospel in a general sense, but specifically the use of scripture in proclaiming the gospel. So yes, it's good for me to go and to tell someone, hey, Jesus died for your sins and to explain that to them. And God uses that. God God may move through that, and a person may come to faith through that exclusively. But more often than not, I think it's actually the preaching of the scriptures and the gospel through the scriptures. And the reason that I say that, and the reason I say that sort of forcefully, is because that's confessionally what the Reformed tradition has always held. So I'm just going to read real quick Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 10. The uh, title of the chapter is Of Effectual Calling. The first article reads, All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call, 
by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. So that's a, that's a dense a dense paragraph or a dense sentence, I suppose, technically. But what I wanted to key in on is that he calls by his word and spirit. Right. So what we have there is kind of this twin call that happens. There's the outward call of the gospel that's proclaimed to everyone, to everyone who will hear it. And then there's this inward call of the spirit that is the effectual call. So the outward call is not in itself effectual, right? I can preach the gospel to a room full of people, and some of those people may respond and some won't. So we have to account for what the difference is. The difference is the spirit operating on their hearts to to renew their wills. And that's what's often missed, though, is that we can't eliminate that outward effectual call simply assuming that God is going to, going to utilize the inward effectual call um, without the outward means that he has, he has brought himself low to use. Right. That's what these means are so important. And we get to have a place in that plan of God. I hate, well, hate's a really strong word. I'm not a big fan of speaking of like partnership in right. this way. Yeah. But I get the idea because I think that's, again, putting the scripture, elevating that means as an appropriate place in the process of regeneration. I mean, Reformed theologians, both now and historically, have affirmed the necessity of the use of means like preaching and prayer specifically in regeneration, right. just like you read there, which, and that's like a beautiful synopsis, isn't it? I mean, I could never yeah. in a million years write anything as good as what's just done there. So in my mind, you have the church, which is working to plant the seed of the gospel, which the Holy Spirit gives life and growth to bring this sweet fruit of salvation, and spiritual restoration. Right. So the reform distinctive is this, I think the gospel, like the word writ large, is necessary, but not the sufficient cause of salvation, right. which is, I think, what is being framed out there. So the Spirit does not gener- regenerate apart from the gospel, and the gospel is not effectual in the natural man's heart apart from regeneration. And who hasn't seen this or experienced this if you've ever shared anything about faith? Because I don't know about you, but I've had the privilege of knowing, working with, and interacting with a lot of intelligent people. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is how when it comes to conversations about faith or the scriptures in particular, even super intelligent people will be willing to go along with kind of the moral characteristics of what the Bible communicates. Would you get into specific pieces of doctrine and they just can't wrap their minds around, not even, not even wrap their minds around. They just actually find it foolish. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. And that yeah. of course comports with a lot of what the scriptures say about itself to those who are still in the natural man. So, it, I mean, have you had that experience? We're just frustrating. You're trying to really even like over-communicate a biblical point, thinking that if, I mean, this happened to me at least, thinking that if I just give another metaphor, just say it slightly differently, it'll start to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I have. And I think I think that's the key point that you're trying to make is that it's not a matter of making sense. Whether it makes sense or not is not the point. And it's not... That's not the sticking point. What the the sticking point is, is whether or not they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Right. And that's one of those things that um, at the same time sometimes makes evangelism frustrating, if we're being honest, is that we can really, really pour our effort into a particular situation or a person or a presentation or whatever, and nothing happens. But the, the flip side of that and the encouragement of that is that if nothing happens, it's not because you failed. It's not because your presentation was not articulate enough or because your relationship was not friendly enough or you didn't sacrifice enough or whatever. It's because the Holy Spirit is not regenerating that person. And that's on purpose. Right. So that, that's where I think you run into problems with some art, you know, Arminian theology or even Lutheran theology is that the final decision in both Lutheran and Arminian theology, to, you know, in different ways, slightly different ways, is ultimately bound to the will of the creature. 
So if you just try harder, it's reasonable to say, well, if I just try harder, then, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll, maybe they'll just come along. Maybe if I just keep at it, maybe if I lie, right? I know people who have thought, well, maybe if I just, maybe if I just soften the truth a little bit, right? Maybe if I don't preach that there's going to be suffering that comes for them if they become a Christian. Those kinds of thought processes are totally alien to Reformed theology. That's not to say that Reformed thinkers and Reformed evangelists don't struggle with those kinds of thoughts. But they're alien to the basis for Reformed evangelism because my presentation, my sacrifice, my um, my ability to be winsome and friendly has nothing to do with whether or not the Holy Spirit has chosen to regenerate a given person. My only obligation that I'm given in scripture is to preach the gospel faithfully to anyone who will listen to me. And in most cases to people who don't even want to listen to me. Right. Exactly. We don't want to be jerks, but like we don't, I know this is going to sound really, really kind of radical, but like we don't have to have permission from people to tell them the truth about the gospel. We have to be, sensitive and intelligent and intentional. But at the end of the day, like if someone is in front of me that needs to hear the gospel, I'm going to tell them the gospel. Yeah. I mean, we don't ask for permission for a bunch of things. Like if you like a particular type of cereal, you're not going right. to ask somebody's permission. Like, can I talk to you about this cereal that I really <laughs> enjoy? You're just going to blow it out. Right. It's because we proselytize the things that we love and the truths that we have come to hang our lives on. So that is for me like this really big divide. And I think it's a source of stress that makes me sad for those that really become burdened with the presentation as you've described it. Right. When in the Reformed tradition, when we go out into the world or even into our own homes and we, or you're not going out into your own home, but having people come into your own home and you're speaking the gospel as it's delivered to us in the full counsel of the scriptures, we know without crossing our fingers that the spirit is always present in those conversations. Right. And that he is doing his work. And sometimes that is to bring further condemnation. And sometimes that is to bring reconciliation to God. But we never have to worry about whether what we're doing is right or sufficient or good enough. Right. Especially if we're hanging close to the scriptures, if we're hanging all of our presentation, like you said, on those very words themselves, memorizing it, uh, filling our minds with it so that we have, we have questions or somebody else has questions that we can speak to it in such a way that our natural language flows right out of that full counsel. We just don't have to worry. So I really feel badly because I know there are some in the Christian faith that really labor over, in fact, they they would probably put me to shame because they're praying more fervently for those opportunities. But there's sometimes there's a tendency to pray in such a way, hoping that we'll just have the good luck that it will work. Right. And that's just a really big burden that we were never intended to bear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of this example of of this workshop that I did at the public library. So, you know, I um I did my diligence, I prepared my lesson and I practiced it and I made my handouts and everything. But I know some people that would agonize over like making sure every person in the town got an invitation, making sure that like they went to every single door in the town and handed out a, a flyer to them. And like I didn't have to do that. And and the reason that I don't have to do that is that God is sovereign and providential. So we do what we are commanded. We're faithful. We're intentional. We are, are you know, we we think things through. We do things with a purpose. But at the end of the day, I don't ever have to sit there and go, well, if I had only just done this, then maybe maybe that person down the street would have come and maybe they would have gotten saved. And now it's my fault. Instead, I can sit back and I can go, you know, that kid that came to the presentation, this is now his second week coming back to the church voluntarily. No one's, right. no one's chasing him down right. and begging him to come to the church. And the flyer made it to him entirely by means of God's gracious will, right? There's natural means, right? The library printed flyers. They put newsletters in their, in their you know, email distributions about the, the lesson, about the, the workshop. But ultimately, I can look at this and I can praise God for all of those things because no one has any right to boast about them except the Lord. 
I can't boast that, that, you know, I did this lesson. The people at the library couldn't boast about sending out the flyers. None of that. Because this, this boy and his mother was brought to the, to the workshop because God drew them to the workshop. I don't know whether they are saved, whether they're already Christians who need more encouragement. I don't know if they're not Christians and will become Christians. I have no idea. But God is God is going to bear fruit where He wants to bear fruit, and hopefully it's in this this you know boy in his his mother's life. Okay, I'm going to go out onto some thin ice and try to construct a oh, metaphor, man. but Uh-oh. because it involves like superhero stuff, I feel like I'm going to need you to rein it in for me. Where's Conrad when we need him? <laughs> I'm not even that worried about the theological disposition of this metaphor. Just just the superhero thing. Oh so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the way that I'm kind of envisioning this is, it seems to me it's almost like, I don't know if there's a superhero who has this, like, is there a superhero that has, like, some kind of special power that's been conveyed upon him or her that is for the use of the one who's conveyed it? Like, does that exist somewhere? Or is they all just, like, you get a superpower and then you use it for, your, for good, but it's mainly for you? I mean, Thor is kind of like that in, in the comics. So, like, Thor... His power is granted to him by Odin, and the hammer decides when he's worthy or not, and like the what the rules are about when he's worthy or not. But in the original comics, if he wasn't worthy, he like lost all of his powers. So unless he was actually like accomplishing the All Father or Odin's will or desires for what it meant to be worthy, right. he didn't have powers anymore. Okay, well that maybe I mean that's a little bit not, of a stretch, maybe, but maybe will not work. Okay, so so here's what I'm just thinking is. To have the scripture at your disposal, to be regenerated, which we know the scripture is a necessary means in that process, but for us to have access to it and to know it by the Holy Spirit's power is, in my estimation, to have like a superpower that we can go out and use for God's glory. But we often just kind of hide that on the side. Or I think we often think the presentation matters or like the music should be better or something else. But really, it is the scripture. Like we just need to get out and speak more from the scripture. And God is, is saying that that is the ordinary means that I use to bring people. And again, we don't need to worry about whether or not this person has the invitation that God has granted to them in the sense of being chosen. Um, but just that we ought to, our first like default position should be to get out and to speak the scriptures and to, to invite people to hear good preaching and to sit under good preaching ourselves. Because this getting this all twisted up, especially in the Arminian perspective, is something that I think is really harmful to our understanding of what the scripture does and whether or not we have any kind of authority or any kind of ability, moral or otherwise, to even like accept a quote unquote invitation to believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and that's that's where this starts theologically starts to become complicated though, is that it's not the case, and I know you're not saying this, but it's it's not the case that God overrides people's free will. Right. Right. And so that's that's where this this balance or this interplay between balance is the wrong word. This interplay between God's sovereignty in accomplishing all that he decrees and the fact that he uses the means of human freedom. He created human means to accomplish that. Those things at first blush seem like they might be contradictory, but they're not. And that's the whole point of what we're trying to say is that God does not just bring about his. So he's not bringing about a new state of affairs ex nihilo, right? Some, some reform thinkers, Jonathan Edwards actually think he's bringing about every single moment is a, a new creation. Each moment is, and there's no relationship to the moment prior. They're just all stacked up on each other. But by and large, the reformed tradition would say that God is not bringing his will into effect in sort of a brute, a brute fashion, right? So it, if he was bringing into a brute fashion, it would simply be, this person needs to be saved. So I'm going to recreate the entire universe instantaneously such that this state of affairs is the case. Right. But God doesn't do that. Instead, he uses the means of, of human, primarily human preaching, but other means as well, to bring the person he desires into his, um, into his family, into his fellowship. But he does that in a way that doesn't violate that person's freedom. So it's true. It's both true that he has decreed and determined and brought about their salvation. 
and also true that they themselves have chosen to be saved as well. So right. all of the bad press that that hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, all the bad press, that part of it is not actually the bad part of the hymn. There's lots of questionable theology, and especially when you understand the supposed story behind it. But the actual, um, the actual line, I have decided to follow Jesus, is not at all objectionable to a Calvinist. So that's that's where we really need to understand and get our heads around the fact that Reformed evangelism is just as much about us faithfully engaging the means that God has ordained to bring about people's salvation as it is, maybe not just as much, but it's also about God's salvation. And that's that's why I'm saying like we have this dual blessing of recognizing that as hard as we work, we are guaranteed exactly the successes that God has designed for yes. us to have. We are guaranteed success. And while it may feel like that means we're also guaranteed failure, what that actually means is the things that we might look at as failure are not actually failure because it's still it's still exactly what God willed for that moment to occur. And to be confident in those means, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of, I think, what we're saying here. So like the question arises based on what you said, is it because we respond to the gospel as it is preached that natural fallen creatures are set free from bondage or is it because they are set free by the spirit that they are then morally able to respond to the gospel? And I think we're falling on like the latter side of that, obviously. Right. And the scriptures are really clear on that. I mean, there's, it's replete with examples and you're right on. So one of my favorites <clears throat> is, you know, the apostles, and the early church definitely understood that the gospel is necessary, but not the sufficient cause of salvation. So right. in this passage, sometimes it's used by Arminians, actually, because there's a question in it. So when Peter's preaching that like banging sermon on the day of Pentecost, I think that's right. the technical Greek word. Yeah. Yep. Um, he, gets, <laughs> he gets to the end, and a lot of people will read that sermon and see this question that the crowd says, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter then says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then, you know, like a verse later, we get into pedo-baptism or credo-baptism, right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. <laughs> so I just want to throw that in there. So, but here's the thing is it's almost like sometimes people read through all of that and they're like, well, see, here is an example of people saying, what do we have to do to be saved? I want to accept that invitation. So are you going to drop the altar call, Peter? What is it that we do? Is there going to be a benediction? Are they going to play soft music? And then we come and talk to you and somebody prays over us. Right. They miss like the sentence above that, which says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So that may seem like just kind of a trivial sentence, but the fact that one, there is a cutting and which, which has all kinds of significance, just we can start there, but it implies there is an object that those who are being cut and, and there is also somebody who is doing the cutting because they were cut and not cutting themselves. And so I, I think we see in this, like you're saying, God is always showing us that activity is taking place on two levels, the divine and the human, but the divine workings of grace are always preceding the human at every level. So you have in the New Testament, all these like examples where Jesus is like, listen, everybody needs to come to me. And in the same breath, he declares, but they cannot come to me. So he gives us this syllogism that says, in effect, unless it is granted, no one will come but all to whom it is granted will come on their own, which I think just wraps us back around to what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even um, obviously like that line that they were cut to the core is really significant, but even if you just, even if that wasn't there, so let's just pretend that we're using the Romans nine Armenian highlighter, which is just a Sharpie to cross out all the stuff you don't want to read. <laughs> Wait, it's a highlighter. That's a Sharpie. Did you just make that up or is that like no, a thing? No, no, no. It's like a really famous meme. Anyway, oh, is it? it's like a picture of Romans nine that's all blacked out and it's like uh, Armenian, Armenian highlighter. I've never, um, I've never heard that before. That's funny. That's because you're not on social media. But so even if you just look at the flow of this passage, right? These are men, many of whom were probably at Christ's crucifixion. So it's not as though Peter is preaching them something they have never heard. True. It's not like Peter comes in and he goes, by the way, I've got this this brand new argument, right? Hey, look, it, you know, this temple didn't build itself. 
So obviously there's a creator, right? He's not using logical deductions and arguments. Not that there's not a place for those. I'm a presuppositionalist, but I still think there's a place for some of those kinds of arguments. Peter comes in and he literally just preaches a sermon out of some of the prophets, which all of these men have read, right? These are not random guys in Jerusalem. These are Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These are not just any guys. These are devout Jews who were dwelling in Jerusalem. These are the Jewish of the, like the most Jewish of all the Jews. Super Jews. Super Jews. And we just got on some watch list somewhere for that. So (laughs) SJs. Yes. So these are men who have heard the gospel preached through the Old Testament. Maybe not explicitly. But they've, the, the gospel is present in the Old Testament. For sure. They were men who heard it. They heard Christ's teaching and they yelled, crucify him. Right? The Lord of glory stood in front of them and said, and, and Pilate said, do you, want, do you want this criminal, this murderer, or do you want this man who's done nothing wrong? And they said, give us the murderer. You crucify that man who's done nothing wrong. This is, this is what, 40 days later, 50 days later? Yeah, Pentecost. 50 Pentecost. days later. And these same men hearing a sermon from a fisherman from Galilee, who they all probably thought, just like everyone else, no one, nothing good comes out of Galilee. And all of a sudden, they're saying, what must we do to be saved? Right. If that is not regeneration, I do not know what is. Right. Exactly. So even if you take the fact that they were cut, cut to the core, you take that verse out, you still have a picture of regeneration in this that is, is kind of impossible to explain apart from a special move of God's spirit. That was exactly my point. <laughs> and you said it better. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm trying not to cough. My cold is lingering and I'm like, ah. I mean, the very fact that people require the Holy Spirit for salvation shows that we really don't have any quote unquote free will to believe left to our own corrupt disposition. And that's kind of what I want to emphasize. But at the same time, like you're saying, those who have been empowered with a will that is to, to trust in Christ will only trust in Christ. Why, why wouldn't we? Exactly. Why wouldn't we? So what's odd is people want to argue that this doesn't make men free. And I want to say, or I'm just going to say because I can, that the only true freedom is the one where you are no longer impounded to sin. Exactly. So that's what we see here. And I think when we we pull that away and we're trying to tease it out or parse it so that we can say Jesus died for everybody and we can present that truth to no matter whoever we see, what we're actually doing is a great disservice to the gospel, both to our own witness and the confidence that we can have in the means that are used in regenerating, but also to explaining what the gospel is to the person who might be genuinely thirsty for that kind of truth. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the way that God uses the scriptures and the proclamation of his word is sometimes really surprising. Because I remember one time I had, you know, I had been talking to this person for quite a long time. It was a person that I worked with when I worked at um, Best Buy Corporate. And I'd been talking with them for quite a long time about the gospel. And I remember one day he sat down, he said, you know, Tony, I just, I just can't, I just can't go there. I just can't. Everything you're saying makes sense. All of the words that are coming out of your mouth are logical. I understand the argument, the, the, the philosophy and the theology makes sense, but I just can't get there. And I looked at him and I said, you know, the Bible has an explanation for why that might be. And he said, what? And I said, well, I can't see whether you're among the elect or not, but God clearly says in his word that there will be those that see this as foolishness. And that just cannot accept it. And he will actually use the fact that they can see that it's foolishness or that they believe it's foolishness and they can see it and understand it and still call it foolishness to further justify their condemnation on the last day. And that was like a significant, significant point for him. And he really took that back and thought about it. And then I moved to New Hampshire. Well, I moved to Boston, but I moved to New England and I just found out like, I don't know, like six months ago that he's since come to faith. And he told me that that conversation was the turning point for him because I took him to the scriptures and I said, you know what? Reprobation is real and you will not be able to, um, you will not be excused from your sin on the basis of the fact that you were reprobate because you still have chosen to reject God. And that was a major turning point for him. So it's, it's not, it's not even the case 
that there are like particular passages. You know, everybody goes to Isaiah 53, right? Everybody goes to Acts 2. Everybody goes to Ephesians 2. We have our favorite pet, you know, pet passages. But the preaching of all of God's word and any of God's word is effectual unto the elect for salvation. You do not ever know which part of the scripture God is going to use to bring about the salvation of his elect. So we have to know all of the scripture because if I wasn't familiar with that passage, the passages that I used, and if I was not equipped to talk about that theology, both intellectually as far as knowing the theology, but equipped in terms of sort of the relational fortitude that it takes to be able to look someone in the eye and say, this is not a good sign, my friend. You have to be ready for that because God's going to use what he's going to use but you might be what it is that God uses. That's the exception that pretty yeah. much proves the point, doesn't it? Because you're right. Not a lot of people go to that passage. And right. I could envision a situation where somebody who perhaps wasn't elect would not be bothered by that at all. Would probably mm-hmm. say, well, see, it's dumb. Even right. your book says that it's dumb. Uh, and yet the heart that God is using, again, through this means of regeneration in the scriptures it is going to be sensitive to that. I think, let me read at least as we kind of close, like one or a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians that speak exactly to that. Since we've been talking so much about the scripture, let's get some scripture in here, I guess. <laughs> so this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 21. For the <coughs> word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Yeah. I mean, that's just so empowering. I I hope that everybody who is listening to us rattle on is getting a sense for just how important the scriptures are and that God would use this, that again, we're not partners in this, but in some small way, he is allowing us to be part of the good work that he is doing. It's all his work that he's doing. And yet by obedience, we cast this, really indiscriminate net for the gospel. Yeah. And we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to conquer rebellious hearts and illumine spiritual truth so that all may understand those whom God has called. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. Again, it's like having a super, it's a, the closest I can ha- come to having a superpower <laughs> that God has given me because yeah. that, that's, how, that's how important and magnificent and huge this is. That's how influential the scriptures are. Yeah. And I mean, how cruel would God be to give us a gospel that is foolishness to those who are perishing and then tell us to preach it if he wasn't going to take that foolishness and use it for salvation? True. That's a good point. I I never understood how an Arminian can look at the scriptures and, and can interpret those passages basically the same way. Right. It's not I, it's not like Armenians look at that and go, well, you know, foolishness in the Greek actually means wisdom. <laughs> right. They don't have an <laughs> argument to say, well, no, it doesn't really mean foolishness. They understand that what what it's saying is that the cross is offensive to people. The gospel right. is offensive to people who are not called by God's spirit. They understand that that's what the text is saying. Well, what kind of loving, gracious God would send his children with an ill-equipped sword unless he planned to do the work himself. Exactly. Or and that's like really what it emissaries. boils down to. Exactly. Yeah. You don't send someone with like a bad check. It would be like if I wrote a check that I knew was going to bounce and asked you to take it to the store and buy something for me. Right. And they run it and it bounces. And I go, well, you know, you know of course it bounced. Instead, it would be like if I sent you with a check that wasn't, you know, wasn't going to work. But then I went and I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to, take care of the shop owner in in terms of changing their prices so that you have enough money. I mean, that's, right. that's a that's a terrible analogy, but it's no, as it's close not bad. as I've got, is that God actually goes and he changes the equation so it balances on the other side. But we can't ever get there without God's spirit working as he does. We're children of the king, man. That's mm-hmm. the good stuff right there. And in fairness to some, probably some of our Armenian brothers and sisters, my experience on this particular point has been there is a proclivity when it comes to matters of salvation. For instance, by, by nature, by, I would say by uh, the renewed heart, to want to pray for right. loved ones that are unsaved. But that is totally inconsistent. I would, I would probably respect more somebody who says, I can't really pray that way 
because right. I see that as a violation of free will rather than to, again, want to really pour out yep. and labor over somebody who they want so desperately to come into the family of God. That is the right proclivity because that's right. what the scripture tells us is the manner in which God operates, that he is that powerful. And I would want God to come, and this is what he's done in my life, to rescue me out from underneath myself. And yeah. that's the only way that I can see that the scripture tells us this happens. And what an amazing blessing, like you said, that he's, uh, to use your metaphor, which I think is pretty good, better than my superhero one, to <laughs> to give us, basically, it is a credit card without a spending limit. And we, we have, it's written on his account, and with the ability to go out and just preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Yeah. And we just, I just been convicted. I ought to be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that probably just about does it. Jesse, how would someone get a hold of us if they want to get their voice on our upcoming question cast? Oh, the question cast is coming up. And I like the way you said it last time, Tony. <laughs> We also must prioritize. And so we prioritize people's voices. So if you have a question, rather than sending an email, I would encourage you to call this number and leave a little ditty for us. It's 607-444-2767. Yes. And we would love it to get some voicemails. We've got a pretty good lineup for this next episode. Keep them coming. We are planning indefinitely to continue these question casts because people really seem to enjoy them. And I've got a lot of positive feedback that, you know, we bring up a topic and we kind of share our thoughts on the topic, but we, by definition, don't talk about what we don't talk about. And so when someone else thinks a thought and they share it with us, then we can incorporate (laughs) their thoughts and their questions into the show. So if you have a question about something we've (sighs) talked about, um, there are probably other people that have had questions about that too. And so call in and, and share, and that way we can make sure those questions get answered. I'm sorry. That, that just made me laugh. That was the <laughs> best plug, like in a weirdly existential way. Like we don't, by definition, we don't talk about what we don't talk about. And if you think a thought, <laughs> that's not our thought. <laughs> this is like, we can't just advertise something normally. We just have to nerd out on everything that we, we do. We do. I'm kind of sleep deprived right now. So I think that might be part of it. I had this weird experience last night where like I could feel my body transitioning into sleep and for whatever reason it was really freaking me out. So every time it would start to happen, it actually felt like I was falling. So like the the idea of like falling asleep, like it really felt like I was falling when I was starting to transition to sleep and I would like start awake every single time. It was very strange. So I'm a little sleep deprived. You know what sounds terrifying? I was watching a commercial recently for some kind of medication and one of the side effects is that sleep paralysis thing. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that where like you wake up, but you can't move your body? No, I haven't. I, but it sounds terrible. Yeah. That's some freaky stuff right there. What I've been told by the people who have had it is that if you focus on trying to wiggle your toes, that it helps you break out of it sooner. <laughs> and I don't know why that is, but that's what I, that's what I, every time it comes up, there's usually like one person off in the corner. That's like, it's a demon. It's definitely a demon. <laughs> And then there's another person that's like, no, it's actually like a drop in your serotonin level. Like they have the scientific explanation for it. And then there's that guy that's like, yeah, that happened to me last night and I just wiggled my toes and it was fine. Oh, that is so So. great. I'm envisioning that kind of quintessential image where there's like a person on each shoulder and one person is like, it's a demon. And the other person is like, it's serotonin technically, but whatever. (laughs) Well, what's really weird about sleep paralysis um, is that, so your brain, the human brain is an amazing kind of like... Um, it fills in the gaps. So like if there's something that you can't understand, your brain will fill in those gaps. So when you have, I've been told when you have sleep paralysis, you feel like you have a weight on your chest. And so people will actually hallucinate that there's some sort of figure in the room or somebody pushing on their chest to fill in the gaps for like you wake up and you feel like there's something on your chest, but there's nothing there. Your brain like fills in that gap and says like, well, there must actually be something there. Right. So that's why some people say it's a demon because people sometimes see like hooded figures in their room or whatever. Okay. So this, we're already off the rails, but I got can I add one more thing to that? Let's do it. So that was like fascinating, right? Based on what you were saying, I read this really (coughs) interesting account. It was a study done of this kind of thing of how people will basically create narrative to explain some kind of freaky like that. Yeah. And when they went back and cross-referenced all these stories through time, they found like an interesting break. And that was basically 
I would say like, in the, of course, like in the middle ages and further back, everything related to freaky experiences like that, like sleep paralysis, for instance, all demon. Yeah. In about the fifties, when aliens became in vogue, it yep. switched over to mostly alien experiences. Yep. I'm talking about probing. So like, it's just, <laughs> it's just funny how, like you said, our mind tends to want to fill in that gap. Another good reason why test everything, test yep. everything. Yeah. Not saying it's not demons, but it's probably right. not demons. Didn't we do a podcast on that? We did our second ever episode. Yeah. Please don't go back and listen because ooh, it was probably knew, really rough. We knew even less about what we were doing than, than we do <laughs> we now. We know virtually nothing now. Yeah, we still know basically nothing, but we somehow knew less than nothing. Uh, well, as usual, Tony, this has been great. I've enjoyed every <laughs> single second of this. And yes. I'm, I'm, here's what I'm better for now. One, I know the Arminian highlighter thing, which is brilliant. <laughs> That's good too. I know a little bit about Thor, so I'm happy for that. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. So close this out. Is there anything you want to say kind of to wrap all this up? The only thing that I want to say is until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>